Dr. David Smerton is a 2011 Sir John Monash Scholar. He's a senior lecturer in the School of Economics at the University of Queensland. David completed a PhD in behavioural economics at the University of Amsterdam. He specialises in behavioural and development economics, where his research investigates topics such as social norms, the impact of refugee integration, and the relationship between inequality and trust. Outside of work, David is also a chess grandmaster, having won the 2009 Oceania Chess Championship and Australian Chess Player of the Year. And it's a real pleasure to say that David is our guest today and he joins us now. G'day, David. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for inviting me. Well, let's talk about chess if we can first up. When did you first develop a love for chess? Always happy to talk about chess first up. Yeah, I started playing when I was uh, five years old, so quite young, and it, uh, it took a little while for me to really get into it because Back then in the early 90s, there wasn't that much availability of playing chess, say, on the internet or things like that. Mm. But the game just just captured me, the complexity, the beauty, and also the adversarial combat, the competitiveness of it. And, uh, yeah, it's become a big part of my life. And who who first taught you the game? Oh, it's a, it's a funny story. No one in my family played chess. I come from a family of artists, actually. But, yes. Uh, yeah, I, found, I found a chess set in the attic when I was five. I asked my dad to um, to teach me. Now, he didn't know the, the rules either, but there was a piece of paper in the chess set which had never been opened. We learned together. Uh, he taught me the rules. We, we played, and after two weeks, I was uh, getting the better of him, so we thought <laughs> he'd roll me in a club and <laughs> went yeah, from there. really. So within a couple of weeks, you're beating dad, and then so you were, you were too good for him, and then you're off to a club in, in Brisbane. Brisbane's your hometown, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's where I was brought up. Look, in, in fairness to my dad, he was also learning chess at the same time, so I've got to give yeah. him some, some credit there. <laughs> but, uh, but no, look, things yeah. went quite quite well for me from, from there. And at the age of nine, I got to play my first international tournament, which was the World Under 10s uh, in Hungary. And that was pretty exciting because little Brisbane kid, I never thought I'd you know, make wow. it to make yeah. it to Europe <laughs> at that age. And, and from there, actually, so chess has taken me around the world, over 40 countries I've played in. It, it's been really good for my, my personal development as well. How did you go in that first international tournament? I did pretty well. Um, I finished, finished about... A thirteenth out of out of eighty or so kids, um, so that was like a, a good start for an Aussie. You know, Aussie's not exactly a mm. uh, Australia's not exactly a chess powerhouse. Let's put it that way. But that sort of got me going. So after that, I played a few more international events, and uh, eventually, actually, after I um, finished my undergrad degree, I took a year off to play chess semi professionally around the world. So I went on the European circuit. Um, that was uh, really yeah. what was yeah, that like. Yeah. Well, so you can imagine you can't really be a professional chess player in Australia, at least not a full-time yes. okay. competitor. Yeah, you can go yeah. into you know coaching and other things like this. But in, in Europe in particular, also North America, but mainly Europe, there are, there are several circuits that you can play on where you see the same faces, other chess professionals or grandmasters from tournament to tournament, different country and cities. It's very exciting life. So I basically used it as a type of gap year for myself. So instead of just backpacking sort of aimlessly, I had a circuit that I went on, which kind of subsidized my travels. And uh, yes. it, it gave that uh, gave me a bit of a sniff about what it would be like to 
to make that my career actually to be a full-time chess player but uh in the end i i opted otherwise as as you know so if you're at the top of your game in chess if you're a pro how much money can you make is it like because obviously you think of pro golfers pro tennis players and those guys are mm. you know men and women are earning squillions what, what's it like in in the chess game yeah um so so golf obviously you know is super duper rich and tennis yes. it's it's a, it's a similar sort of structure um in that the very top guys are making a really nice living and then after that you get into the journeymen and journeywomen so to speak salary wise yep. it's probably more similar to say the nrl so australian rugby league yeah okay. where, yes. where the top the top guys are sort of making you know a million a year if you're right at the top but then for the rest of them they're making a career uh where they're living you know quite well i guess one of the differences with chess is that your shelf life is longer of course so of course. You, know. <laughs> you don't have dodgy knees or dodgy shoulders Exactly. So you don't have that risk of injury that will suddenly end your earning prospects. And also you can play, you know, into your 50s, your 60s still as a professional, which obviously you can't do in rugby league. So, But it's a similar sort of pay scale, I would say, to that. Is it one of those things that, are, you know, you, th- you sometimes go into bars around Australia and there's pool tables and you can have a couple of hustlers that are there that are playing terribly and all of a sudden the money comes out and they'll clean you up. Do you, <laughs> you, do you, do you have those situations in chess where, you know, you have a couple of false moves and then, you know, for, for money you, you're, in, <laughs> you're into it and you just wipe the table with them? Oh, you, you do. You do. I would say um, that there are like particularly, so not so much in Australia, but in Europe, in most of the big cities, there are bars, cafes or parks where chess is played every single day, sometimes yes. for money, sometimes not. So in Paris, it's in the Luxembourg Gardens, for instance. In Amsterdam, there are a number of chess cafes, so to speak. You've got Washington Square in the US and, and you've got hustlers there who try to make a living from it that way. Um, but it's not kind of the main way for making chess income. If you're not making yeah. it as a player yeah. anymore, you're probably going to be either a chess coach or um, particularly since uh, COVID lockdowns, chess streaming has kind of become a thing uh, as well. Yes. So you've got you've got these esports where people sort of play different um, games and, and stream themselves and, and make a pretty decent income that way. And chess has sort of become quite a big rival to the other major video games now for, for streaming. So you yeah. wouldn't have imagined it, but it's, it's another career path that you can go down now as a chess player. Have you ever played those random games in in New York or, or in Europe where you're just walking along and you see a see an opponent and you sit down and just have a game? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, if, if if you travel to these places and you're a chess player, it's kind of a must. You've got no choice. You, you've got and to go to one of these places. And what's that in. like? Are you playing some random 70-year-old and, you know, you just – what do you, do you do you talk to them during the games? Yeah, particularly in these sort of, you know, social settings, chess is not that sullen, quiet thing that you might yes. you might imagine is – there's, there's particularly in the US, trash talking is a big deal in chess. So, is it? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. There's a lot of sledging. I remember, I'll give you an example. I was walking past um, Muscle Beach in Los Angeles, you know, where all yes. the you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. used to train yeah. this sort of stuff. And that's where uh, there's Venice a. There's Beach. a yep. Yeah, there's, there's exactly Venice Beach um, where they got the gyms there. And there was a bunch of tables there where the, the hustlers were playing, but also not just hustlers, you know, people playing social chess. And I walked past it. 
um, with a couple other people from the beach. So we just got, you know, board shorts and, and a towel. It's all wearing. And uh, one of the guys um, is a big African-American guy. Looked like he'd been working out in the gym but was a chess player there. He mm. called out to me because he saw me looking at the chess and like sticky beaking at the game. And he called out and he said, <laughs> hey, you. He said, hey, you you look like you need an ass whooping. Do you need an ass whooping? And I kind of got, I was like, what? He's not used to this in Australia. What's what's he saying? And then he was like, come on, sit down, let's have a game. And I realized that was his way of inviting Mm. me to play basically. Smack talk. Yeah. (laughs) Smack talk before I'd even sat down. And so I sat down and he thought I was just, you know, a passerby. He was a super nice guy. Like he was inviting random tourists to come and play. And then when I beat him, he sort of asked about my, my strength and I sort of confided that, yeah, okay, I used to be, you know, semi-pro. And so suddenly they got on the phone. He was like, I've got to call Igor the Russian and I've got to call Boris the Bulgarian. And suddenly these random guys were coming down and got the call that I was there and I was playing all of them for the next hour or so. It was really, really good fun as well. And how'd you go? Well, you know, I was significantly better than than those guys <laughs> there. But, uh, but that's not – I mean, the point is kind of that like – I didn't know any of these people. The only thing we had in common Fantastic. was this game of chess and suddenly we're, you know, best buddies after an hour. So that's that's the good thing about chess. Around the world we're kind of a it's like kind of like one one community. Do you ever have an off day? Like a bad day where you go, "Oh god, I shouldn't have done that. I know better." I imagine, yeah, well, imagine every, uh, imagine that, time, that, yeah. does, that does happen. Yeah. yeah one, one of the things about chess, if I'm trying to compare it to a sport, it's it's less like tennis or cricket where it's accumulation of individual points or balls and and more yes. like boxing because in boxing you can be dominating your opponent for you know 12 rounds but you make one mistake and that's it Bang. game over yeah same with yes. chess you can be winning for 39 moves out of 40 play the one bad move and you've just wasted the last five hours of your life basically because you've lost <laughs> and that hurts that really hurts and um it's actually this this uh, similarity with uh boxing and other martial arts is one of the reasons that this bizarre new sport called chess boxing has actually taken off. I don't know. Hang have on, you ever heard hang of it on. Before? No, no. I'm not familiar with chess boxing. Uh, I feel that I'm going to derail the structure of this podcast. But That's okay. Me- <laughs> let's, let's just break all the rules. Let me tell you anyway. I'll, I'll tell you about it and then uh, you and listeners can probably go down the YouTube rabbit hole to find out more. But <laughs> chess boxing is a this bizarre sport where – uh, it starts off in a boxing ring. You've got people screaming at you. you, you just, um, you, you're set in your boxing attire. You're bashing each other up for a round, and then the bell rings. And instead of just taking a break and going to your corners, they get a chess table out. They put it in the middle of the ring. <laughs> two chairs. You sit down. This is all, this is all legit. You've got to check it out. You sit down, and you start a game of chess. You've got a chess timer there. You're playing. And then after a couple of minutes, the bell rings and you pause the game. So you pause the timer, you pause the game, everything's yep. frozen. They take it out of the ring, they ring the bell and you start bashing each and other up and again. And do it again with, you know, bloody noses and, yeah. Yep, yep. And it's a, it's a look, it's a real thing. They've got um, – it used to be a thing that the Russians, uh, Germans and um, ex-Eastern uh, Europeans – really light, this sort of like combination of brains and brawn. But then, you know, they recently had the world champs in London. There are big gyms now in New York and I think San Francisco as well. It's not something that I would ever be any good at for um, reasons that uh, aren't to do with the chess, let's put it that way. 
but it's all st- stick to the chess. <laughs> but it, but it it does sort of reflect that thing that that one of the real beauties, but also traumas of chess and also boxing is that the better person doesn't always win because yes. that one lapse in concentration can can ruin everything. What's your longest ever game? Eight hours was my longest one. It was broken up over two sessions actually. After about uh, six and a half hours, they. This was back in the day when they had a thing called adjournments in chess. So after six and a half hours, they paused the game. It was a Queensland chess championship when I was 12 and I was playing against a 40-year-old. They paused the game and then we came back the next week and finished it off then. So in total, it was eight hours. Did you win? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, I think I just outlasted the poor guy who probably had like a wife and kids to get back to. That's right. Screaming kids. You might have been hung over. You don't know. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm now on the other side of that table as I'm sort Ah. of approaching 40. So I know what it's like to to have that pressure of getting home to the kids uh, that, that, uh, that he had back then. Are we good at chess in Australia? We didn't used to be. When I was um, being, well, yeah, when I was a kid, um, we were always behind and playing catch up, you know, and particularly mm. because information wasn't widely available. So we didn't have access to the Russian textbooks and the Soviet coaches and that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, but things have changed now. The playing field is much more level. You're seeing chess prodigies from you know countries in Africa and Southeast Asia rising to the top because they got access to all this information. And Australia now, um, we're, we're much better than we used to be. We never used to be close to the top 50 countries in the world. We're now okay. pushing towards like the top 20. So, you know, we're not right up there, but we're getting much closer. And, and who are the best traditionally? Oh, internationally. Yeah. So the United States is currently the top, but it's a little bit controversial because uh, none of their top team are actually homegrown. There's a thing that happens. Ah. It's a little bit similar to um, Champions League soccer, for instance, in Europe, in that you can actually buy and sell players. Now, it doesn't happen so much at the international level in chess, but recently it started. So a US billionaire has actually been paying for top players from other countries to change federations and start a new life in the US, all, all perfectly legitimate. Uh, and that's proved to be quite successful. Although in the recent World Chess there's Championships- There's no salary cap. There's no, there's no salary <laughs> cap. No, it's a very interesting world. But, but recently what's been happening, um, particularly in the last World Chess Championships, is that a lot of countries that uh, traditionally are not particularly rich and don't have a lot of funding have been rising to the top. So India, Uzbekistan, Iran, countries like this are, are getting close to the top now as well. And actually, um, Uzbekistan recently won the World Chess Championships. Um, other countries like uh, China, Germany, the UK are also also very strong in chess, France as well. And like I said, Australia is, is getting closer, but we're still not really a medal shot these days. And, and what is it that you love about chess is it, is it the psychological warfare? Is it slowly eviscerating your opponent? What, what, what is it that, you know, the, 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 ment- the mental anguish? What, what is it that you love about playing chess? It's a, great, it's a great question because chess has been described, you know, various famous quotes describe it as a science, an art, a battle, a fight, um, all these sort of things. And it's, it's different things to different people. It's, it's a very rich game. For a lot of people, particularly at the top level, it is that competitiveness, that that battle of wits where you're trying to beat the other person, whoever they are. For me, it's a little bit different and 
I'm not quite as competitive, which may explain why I didn't excel right to the top. Um, for me, I see a lot of beauty in the game. I can lose a game to someone else but be quite satisfied even though I lost because the the game, the patterns and the combinations were, in my opinion, very creative and artistic. So that can satisfy me, whereas for other mm. people, it's just the runs on the board that matter. You would have no doubt seen the Queen's Gambit a few years ago on on Netflix. What did you make of that special? Yeah, I sure did. It was fantastic. It, it sort of came at the right time that the doves sort of lined up for, sorry, the ducks lined up for, for chess around the world because we had these COVID lockdowns, people stuck at home looking for new hobbies or things to get into, but they couldn't go outside. Chess has that ability. You can jump on the internet and in a second play anyone around the world. And then Netflix came along with this uh, really, you know, captivating show that was also really accurate. They actually got former world chess champion as one of their consultants. So Did they? the, the yes, games okay. and the characters, yeah, the games and the characters were all based on real games, real characters for the most part. Sometimes, you know, a merge of different personalities would fill a character. Mm but it stuck very closely to what the world of professional chess is, is like. And the show kind of through the eyes of, of, you know, the main character, it takes people who don't know anything about the chess world on a journey into what it's like to enter this community and, and go all the way and play at the top level. And, uh, yeah, it was great for us to see, but I think really, really good for people who did know about our world and sort of, you know, got a bit of an insight into it. And at the same time, I imagine, introduced a lot of people to the world of chess. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, chess really took off during this period, a combination of the Netflix effect and, like I said, these lockdowns. But I think what was most interesting is that you know chess has always been a very male-dominated game and around the world mm. it's like 90% mm. male at most tournaments. But during yes. this period post-Netflix, we saw a big increase in enrollments into chess clubs from uh, females and particularly around that age, you know, 18 to 30, which is sort of the, you know, Netflix sort of demographic for that show. And that was really nice to see. It's kind of we're, we're trying to mix things up in the chess world when it comes to gender diversity and I think Netflix helped a lot. Is it is it ever too late to pick up or learn the game of chess? If someone's listening to this and they're in their 40s or 50s or 60s, that you know, is it too late for them or is it available at any age to, to start learning the game? Yeah, it's available at any age. I, I, there is the downside that if you want to become the world chess champion, your chances are going to be pretty yes. slim if you yes. haven't started when you're a you know, tiny pup. Um, yep. that's, that's the nature with most things though, you know, the nature with yes, most sports. That's right. um, but in terms of picking up chess for enjoyment's sake, you can start at any time and actually there's never been a better time in history because you've got all these freely available tools online. Like I said, you can just, you know, you can play on your phone against someone from around the world in mm. a second. You know, that's, mm. that's the thing you can't do with most sports or hobbies. So that's incredible. YouTube videos are all freely available that'll teach you to help you improve your game. There's a super active chess community on all of the social media sites on you know Twitter and Facebook where, where you'll find a whole bunch of people starting out at your level as well. So it's actually the best time ever to learn to play chess. And is it one of those things where you can memorize almost like an algorithm of certain moves? Like, for example, if you're solving a Rubik's Cube, there's a certain way to do it that always will work if you follow this algorithm. Is is chess a little bit like that? For, for, 
ask, being asked by someone who doesn't play the game. Yeah, well, so memory is, is one of the things that's going to help you be a better chess player. And there are mm-hmm. other things like your ability to calculate. So, you know, if you're good at math, you're going to be better at calculation. If you're good at memory, you're going to be good at remembering those rote moves at the start of a game. Like, you know, these things are true. But chess is such a rich and complex game that you can be good at other things, not those particular skills, and still do quite well. So it's a little bit like tennis. You know, you don't have to be a fantastic server to be a good tennis player. Yes, You you don't have to have a a killer backhand to be a good tennis player if you adapt your game to meet your strengths. In my case, for example, I'm a pretty good psychological player. I have a pretty good feeling for what sort of positions are going to make you, my opponent, uncomfortable. And that's Mm. what I use to my advantage. I'm not particularly good at, um, say, memory, for example, and I've had to adapt my game accordingly. So I think, you know, people who say, well, I'm not good at math, so I better not take up chess. Um, That's probably not true. So you can still get into it in Excel without being good at that sort of stuff. Now, I understand, David, there's been a this recent controversy over a potential cheating crisis in the world of chess. Can you yes. tell us about that? <laughs> what happened there? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's something that made it into mainstream news, so non-chess news. So um, some people may already be familiar <laughs> non- with it. But non-chess news. <laughs> well, that's, you know, in my world, that's how I think about it. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so uh, it's usually when chess makes it into – um, you know, uh, the, the regular news cycle, it's, it's not always a positive thing like, like uh, Queen's Gambit and Netflix. It's usually something salacious or a scandal. So basically what happened is that one of America's top juniors, a 19-year-old, beat yes. the world chess champion, Magnus Carlsen, who's sort of known as the Mozart of chess. He's, he's the greatest chess player we've ever had. And, really? Uh, Where's he from? He's from Norway, which is not traditionally a chess powerhouse, but he's just yeah. one of these incredible geniuses you know Mm. einstein whatever you want to call him he's just he's not just the best he's the best you compare all the world champions for the last 200 years and he's better than all of them really at at, at their peak yeah he's he's, okay that's that's pretty much accepted now that he is you know he is the don bradman of chess or whatever you want to call it yes and uh and so he got him getting beaten was a big deal and it was actually a game that stopped him from breaking the record of the longest undefeated streak, you know, more than 100 competitive top-level games he hadn't been beaten. Mm. Um, And he didn't take it very well. And he, in fact, refused to play against this this junior again and made a cryptic tweet that essentially wasn't very cryptic and, and said that this guy had cheated to beat him. He accused the American junior. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, what made this kind of, I guess, more interesting and newsworthy is that the 19-year-old is this really loud, arrogant um, New Yorker um, who in interviews is, is not very humble and says what he thinks. And, you know, that's great. We, we like these personalities for the chess world, but yep. that may have hurt the world champion's ego a bit who was suffering from a bad loss. And so people sort of thought, well, he's just being a sore loser. But then yes. these extra revelations came out that the 19-year-old, when he was 16 and, and 14, in uh, online chess, on internet chess, had been banned for cheating in the past. So he had a history of cheating. Oh, and, and that okay. sort of muddied the waters. And you know, the world champion said, well, I'm never going to play this guy again. And then other people said, well, you're 
using your power and, and role to uh, sabotage a young player's career. And anyway, so all of this exploded and then the rumors started about how he could have cheated and that started a whole new news cycle. So it's a big deal for the chess world, but uh, uh, hopefully it um, some good comes out of it uh, in the end and people's careers aren't destroyed. Has, has, there, been any, has there been any resolution to this crisis no well since since this all sort of happened the two haven't played in the same event yet and neither have been invited to the same tournament so we haven't had to deal with that issue uh again so we haven't had to you know call the world champion out on whether or not he's really going to boycott all games but this is going to happen again in the future no question that they will be in the same event i mean this this kid now is in the top 50 players in the world they're going to be paired against each other i hope that things resolve, egos settle down, all that sort of stuff. There has been a little bit more focus placed on the problem of cheating in chess. And that's been a good yes. thing because it's something that, you know, we do need to address to keep the game clean and, you know, keep everyone having having a good time. Uh, and so that's been one positive out of it. But uh, no, no fixed resolution yet. So you are an economist, by trade at the University of Queensland. You were telling me off air that you've somehow managed to combine your professional life in economics with with your hobby of chess to become a chess economist. Did I understand you correctly? Yeah, yeah. Look, let's let's put chess economist as a as an informal <laughs> title because yes. there's only one in the world. That's me, <laughs> and, <laughs> and it probably is not a title that would garner a lot of respect from my economist uh, colleagues. So um, I still consider myself to be largely a behavioral economist. Behavioral economics looks at psychology and biases in decision-making, which is an important thing in the world. So, you know, people make decisions about finances, about their personal life, family situations. We want to help people make better decisions as economists. So that's, that's the world that I work in. But chess is obviously a cognitive game where you're making decisions all the time, every move. So in many ways, because You've got this level playing field. People from all walks of life are in this situation. And we've got great data where we can analyze these decisions and what affect them and how we can get people to make better ones. We can use it as some sort of proxy, some sort of environment to test theories of behavioral economics and see whether they work or not and things like this. So that's how I've tried to combine, yeah, like you said, my my past life and and my passion Mm. for chess with my my professional field. Tell me about the PhD that you did, David, and why did you choose the University of Amsterdam? So prior to that, I was working as a policy analyst in the Department of Treasury in Canberra. And mm-hmm. uh, as a graduate from just out of my undergrad, I was placed in a, um, in a role in a group that dealt with financial market regulation. And okay. it was a very, a very small team and I was the graduate on the team and Typically, the job just involved small tweaks to the government legislation because there wasn't much uh, happening that needed, uh, you know, big things addressed in terms of um, hedge funds and securitized products and and things like this that um, later became a really big deal when the uh, subprime mortgage crisis hit in the mm. US in 2007 and then the global financial crisis sort of got going in 2008. So when that hit this small team suddenly was put in the limelight because we were responsible for a lot of these difficult financial products that 
Australia needed to come up with new policies to address. You know, we've got the Treasurer and Prime Minister at the G20 and things like this. You know, it was a big deal. Nobody really knew what these products were doing and why classical economic theories had failed and led to this big collapse. So that put me uh, a little bit more in the spotlight than I would normally have been as a graduate. I had a lot of responsibility with learning about these complex financial instruments and trying to understand why classical economic models had had failed to predict the crisis. And, okay, once that sort of got passed after a few years' time, um, there was a big push within the Treasury and also other parts of um, Australian government to put behavioural economics more on the map in terms of um, the models we had for how people made decisions. Because obviously people weren't acting the way they were supposed to, according to the models. Um, (laughs) Have they ever? (laughs) Well, psychologists would say, well, of course not. We've been telling you this for 100 years. But Mm. the mathematical economic models still didn't integrate a lot of these behavioral. When I'm talking about behavioral stuff, I'm talking about Sometimes you make decisions that you know may not be in your best interest in the long term, but we do it anyway. It's human nature. We all have bias. Yes. So th- I really got interested in behavioral economics. I wanted to do more study about it. Um, at that time, uh, the Netherlands was a bit of a powerhouse for behavioral economics in Europe. Um, in the past history, they've always been willing to go down more heterodox approaches to economics that you know maybe the mainstream classical economics classical economists would not necessarily uh, approve of, so more sort of fringe theories, but had a very good reputation, you know, top 20 institution in the world. So that was one of the big draw cards for me to apply for the General Sir John Monash uh, Scholarship, which which funded me to go there and do my PhD. I got to to be supervised by some of the best behavioral economists in the world, learn about these theories that integrated psychology into economics, so a really nice, you know, blend of skills. And, yeah, that started me on this pathway. And did you have a good time over there? What was it like studying in Amsterdam? Oh, it was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, in, generally speaking, Amsterdam is an incredible place to live. It's mm. a real melting pot of, of cultures as well. Um, but in terms of particularly the behavioural economics, I got exposure to, yeah, like I said, some of the best behavioural economists in the world. My PhD thesis was particularly focused on what uh, what we call bad social norms, which is not a topic that economists uh, have touched very much. Um, so a social yeah. norm, like so gen- I mean, just in, in layman's terms, a social norm is any situation where you're more likely to do something if other people are doing it and you're less mm. likely to do it if others are not doing it. Did your it. research so, involve going to a lot of bucks parties? <laughs> well, look, you know, you've got you to get out in the field. You've got to understand the people, Justin. Yeah, um, that's right. But, uh, but look, so, so economists ha- hadn't really touched this topic much in the past. Um, it's sort of more been the area of psychologists. Economists always used to think, look, you just do what's best for you, forget what other people are doing. But then when things happen like, subprime mortgage crisis and things like this, you've got to start thinking about these things like peer effects and things like this. And in Australia, for instance, we have a bit of a culture that you've got to own a house, right? Like you haven't made yes. it until you own a house. Yep. That's not that's not the norm everywhere. So somewhere like uh, Germany, for instance, you can get a, a rental contract for 99 years and people won't look down on you for that. They'll be like, yeah, okay, you're renting for life. Mm. Why not? But here you've got to buy a house. Now, we, economists have been talking for years that we've got a housing bubble in Australia. What's propping it up? It's really hard to explain if you don't go into these things to do with social norms and culture mm, and stuff that mm, you know, it doesn't have true. like 
fancy graphs and math to it. It's it's got psychology theories that you care about. Now, for me, bad social norms, so social norms that exist, but we actually would love as a society to get rid of them. Those are the things that really fascinated me. And you mentioned right at the outset this combination of behavioral economics and development economics. I'm particularly interested about really tough issues facing developing countries where there's a bad social norm in place. Maybe most people want to shake it off, but they can't seem to get rid of it for sometimes generations. That's something that really motivates me to want to get in there and shake it up. We're almost out of time. It would be remiss of me not to ask you your best opening move in chess. <laughs> what, what do you like? Oh, look, uh, so I, I mentioned a little bit earlier that I'm a, um, more of a psychological player. That means that quite often I play moves that the computer frowns at and, and shakes its head at and says isn't the best move, objectively speaking. But psychologically, I know it makes my opponent really uncomfortable. And, <laughs> yes, that's, uh, yeah, that's, I like that's what I want to do. You know, I want to I annoy my opponent with underarm serves in tennis, like just to try to shake them up the a bit. The curious approach. Exactly, yeah. I'm a, well, I don't know <laughs> if I'm like curious, but let's say so. Um, but uh, so there's one particular opening move um, that's actually now been named after me because I'm the only grandmaster really who plays it all the time. It's Stop now, it. I didn't know this. What's, yeah. this, what's it called? <laughs> well, it's, it's part of a, uh, a broader category called the Scandinavian defense. But because mm-hmm. I play it all the time, it's now called Smurden's Scandinavian. Smurden being my name. It's a very weird thing because I've got nothing to do with Scandinavia. Yeah. But um, the reason I'm the only grandmaster who plays it is that objectively it's just dodgy as. Like it's just not a yes. good opening to play as black. <laughs> you, you you give away your pieces from move one, which you're really not supposed to do in chess, particularly yes. if you're the side that the side playing black, the side that's already at a disadvantage. Mm. But I do it because it shakes up my opponent. They're not used to it. And quite often they go wrong, and uh, now I've you know I've written written a book about it and done some. You're unsettling them, yes. So what is it? Where do you like? What are you moving? Where do you go? Well, I don't know if I should use this podcast to send people to my book, to, but uh, but I'll just tell you it's uh you when when white usually pushes the pawn in front of their king. Uh, two squares that's sort of the most popular opening move and mm. what you do as black is you move the pawn in front of your queen two squares basically offering to offering a pawn to your opponent straight off the bat offering your your opponent mm. the chance to be a, have an extra pawn in the game so it's, it's a gambit we call it because you're sacrificing mm. and you go on the attack straight away after that and uh, yeah look it's good fun like I said it's it's not uh, objectively a very good opening but keeps things interesting and that's uh that's the one named after me fantastic well it's been wonderful um talking with you today david i've had a really good time catching up with you thank you for coming on to the show and all the best in your professional career at uq teaching in the school of economics and all the best in your chess pursuits outside of work <laughs> cheers, well done, and, and, and thank, thanks for coming on to the show thanks a lot justin cheers